All right, well, let's pray together as we get started uh, today. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the instructions in your word, even when they're difficult and challenging. I pray, Father, that we'll do a good job with these things, that they'll be clear, that we won't give anybody the wrong impressions. We certainly won't mislead anyone, but we will be clear about the principles from your word as they pertain to uh, families and widows and women in the family and moms and wives and, and help us to do well with these things because they can be sensitive, but sometimes it's the things that are very sensitive to us that are the most important in the world. So we need to hear what your word says. Give us strength to do so. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, today we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Once again, uh, last week we spoke uh, particularly on uh, men and their call to work for a living in the home, and uh, today we're going to uh, speak towards uh, women, and we're going to do so by looking at a passage in 1 Timothy 5 that deals with widows. And so let's begin reading in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, and let's read down through verse 11. Let me read now to you from the New King James. Honor widows who are really widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, and these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under sixty years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. So that's as far as we're going to read today. And what we're going to try to do is explain the list that uh, Paul mentions to Timothy here and then uh, speak to each of these qualifications that are required if a widow is going to be put on the list. So let's first uh, focus in on what it is we're talking about again. Verse 9 says, Do not let a window, a widow, a window wouldn't work either, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number or into the list. Now what's he talking about? Well, it becomes obvious from the text that apparently, at least in Ephesus, there was a list of women who were widows who were older, and maybe it pertained to more than just widows. Maybe there were other you know, women who had been left alone who were older. I don't know. But there was a list of widows who were older, uh, who met these qualifications, who had been set aside, apparently, for ministry. So this is not talking about just the church's responsibility to care for widows, because as we've already seen, the church absolutely has the responsibility to care for widows, the church absolutely has the responsibility to care for all widows who are truly alone, who are being neglected and left alone by their families. The church has a responsibility to provide support for all widows, but there apparently was a list of widows, in other words, a role, a number, a membership of widows, and these widows were to be set aside, dedicated to Christ for particular ministry service. 
You know, most likely these were the widows who would step in and, and, and minister and care and provide for day-to-day -day needs in the congregation, doing uh, service work and ministry work and help and support work to families, to perhaps younger women, uh, serving with children. Th these, this was a special subset of people in the ministry who were going to receive ongoing support from the church as widows, but who were also expected to perform a particular task as they receive this ongoing support. Now, this is the only place to my knowledge in the New Testament where this particular list or number is mentioned. So it's, it's, it's not only probable, it's likely that this category of servants was not necessarily meant to be uh, adopted or established in every single church, but there was at least the understanding that it was adopted and established in the church where Timothy was. In other words, this doesn't necessarily mean that every church has to have a role or class of widows uh, similar to the one we see here, but at least in Timothy's church, there was one. So again, we need to be clear. This is not, well, the church will only care for and the church will only step in and provide for widows who meet all these qualifications. And every other widow who doesn't happen to meet these qualifications, they're out on their own. That's not what this is about at all. You know, the, the Bible in this chapter has already been uh, specifically clear that, verse 5, she who is really a widow and left alone, trusting God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. The church has a responsibility to a Christian woman who is truly alone and who needs support. Okay, no matter her age, no matter her other background issues, that, you know, no one is to be abandoned in the Christian household of God to just starve or fend for themselves. No one in the family of God should be abandoned to that fate. But there is a list here of those who would be set aside for particular church care and particularly ch particular church ministry. Now, what we're going to find in the list is that there's, a, there's a, a, a pretty strong set of qualifications that in order for a woman to be established with this long-term commitment to dedicated church service and ongoing church service and discipline. She's not going to pursue a family. She's not pursuing remarriage. She's pursuing, uh, you know, serving the church specifically in this capacity. There are qualifications. So let's look at them, uh, beginning now in verse 9. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. So you can see up here, qualification number one, okay, uh, she has to be older then 60 years old. Well, I guess 60 years old or older. So, you know, that should be a little equal sign underneath the, the, the greater than sign. 60 years old. Now, for us, 60 years old may not seem that old. And so I'm certainly not trying to offend anybody by suggesting that you are super, super old if you are 60 or older. But the reality is that in the Roman world, uh, the life expectancy for a woman in the Roman world, once you take out the factor of infant mortality, because obviously little children who die as infants bring down the averages, but once you account for infant mortality and set that aside, the life expectancy of women who would reach adulthood was mid to late 50s. That's it. You know, it was very uncommon for women to live to be 70, 80, 90 years old. In the, in the Roman Empire. That was not the routine thing. The, the average life expectancy was mid to late 50s, at least according to all the research that I could do. So when Paul writes here that there is an age qualification of 60 or older, clearly we can observe a few things. 
Number one, this was not like a professional career avenue. Okay, it was not as if you know a young woman or a middle-aged woman would decide, you know what, uh, I've 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 tried my hand at the family, or I've tried my hand at marriage, or I, I'm thinking, you know, I've, I've tried to find a suitable partner in life. So I I think that I want to be dedicated and set aside specifically for church service, so that I'm doing ministry all the time in the church, and the church is providing for all my needs. Now I'm not condemning. You know, a relationship like that between a woman who's serving the Lord and the church. I'm simply saying there's no precedent for that in this text. This is not a professional career. Okay, this is not something that, that you establish for the long-term sustenance of your daily life. Okay, that's not what this was. This was, a, you know, when you are to a point in life where uh, you are, are, are nearing statistically death. Okay, it does not make sense for a woman over the age of 60 in the ancient world, when life expectancy was mid to late 50s, to go out and be exploring new marriage options. It's certainly not forbidden to remarry, okay? But, but it, you are not going to have a lot of eligible you know, suitors knocking on your door, presumably, okay? Nor did it, did it make sense that you were going to have a lot of great employment options, frankly, okay? It wasn't, wasn't you know, likely that you were going to go, you know, apply for work down at the docks or apply for work down at the, at the, at the uh, marketplace where they take people to go work in the agricultural fields all day. Of course, you were free to do that, but this is, uh, this is a list that is catering towards a specific age, a specific class of person whom, you know, let's be honest about this, and this is certainly true in today's day and age too. There are a lot of people who reach a point in their life where they are nearing the end of our average life expectancy for us, maybe late 70s. And it seems like the rest of, of the world is just done with them. Seems like the rest of the world is finished with them. And nobody has any use for them anymore. That's not the way it was supposed to operate in the Church of God. It's not the way it's supposed to operate today in the Church of God. So. Over the age of 60 meant this was not a professional career. This was not something that you went and got seminary training for. You didn't need seminary training to be a minister of God. Um, this was uh, a person in older age whose husband had died and left a widow. What is she going to do with the rest of her life? Well, if she's alone, the church is going to be providing for her anyway. Is she qualified to do a particular kind of ministry? Is she qualified to do that? That's the question that we're asking. Now, this brings up an interesting point that we'll make here. Older age presents Christians with a choice, okay? Older age presents Christians with a choice. Um, when you reach a particular age where the society has decided that you are no longer a, a productive worker for industry, when you reach a point where you have saved enough money and you've reached an age where you no longer need to work to provide for a living, you can either embrace the earthly idea of retirement or you can dedicate yourself to good works in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but the earthly idea of retirement, that you're essentially going to you know, stop doing work and, and stop uh, you know, engaging in the, in the culture around you except for enjoyment and entertainment and vacation, that idea of retirement is not biblical. Let's listen uh, to this from Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to read to you verses 8, 9, and 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's every Christian, regardless of age. 
For by grace you have been saved, you have been redeemed through faith. And that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So regardless of your age, if you're saved, God has given you a gift of salvation. For we are, verse 10, His workmanship. We are the work of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That applies to any Christian of any age. These good works God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. doesn't mean walk in them until you've reached a point in life where the culture around you expects you to stop working and stop contributing and stop trying and just take it easy and enjoy the rest of your life. You know, if you can't perform good work for the Lord Jesus Christ with joy, knowing that you're doing what He created you to perform, you're doing what He created you to do, then I'm not sure you've got the right idea of what it means to be a Christian. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We weren't saved by those good works. But we were saved for those good works. And to reach a certain age in life where you abandon a dedication to good works in Jesus Christ simply because the world has said you're too old to do anything else or you're old enough, you've, you've, you've earned the right to sit around and do nothing. That's ridiculous. Listen to this from Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store all my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have laid up many goods for many years. Take your ease. Stop working. Stop working. Take your ease. Drink. Be happy. It, it's, it sounds like, you know, a retirement. It sounds like a Merrill Lynch commercial. It does. You know what? This guy had a... Had a Huge harvest. He's very wealthy. He says, what am I going to do? I can't store all this stuff. I know I'm going to find a way to store and save and have more so that then I can say, okay, I'm set for many, many years. Now I can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now I can really enjoy the good life, the life that I spent my whole life saving and working towards. But God said to him, fool, fool. That's the judgment of everyone who embraces so much of the world's idea about retirement. I've saved, I've stored, I'm set for many years. Now I can finally take it easy and enjoy life. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. That's why he's a fool. I'm set for many, many years. You don't know the day that you're going to die. You think you're set? You think you're good on this world because you've managed to save up a lot of money or a lot of resources? You don't know when the next breath is going to be your last breath. You don't know the time that comes. You fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then here's the foolish part of it. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? You've spent your life saving and working for somebody else. I've seen this happen in my own life. I've seen it happen with people who are very close to me. Watch people who said they were going to retire. They said they were going to retire. They said they were going to retire. They said it for years. They were looking forward to retirement. And they've told me all their plans. I'm going to do this. and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. And I watched those people die in their early 60s 
well before the life expectancy was over. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? What's the foolishness of it? Well, here's the counsel of God. Here's Jesus in Luke chapter 12. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How do you become rich toward God? You don't store up treasures on earth. You store up treasures on heaven. I'm not condemning retirement accounts. I have a retire. I'm condemning laziness that reaches a point in life that believes because I have a lot, I'm done and I don't have to do anything anymore and I can eat, drink, and be merry or I can only do the work that provides me pleasure and serves myself. Christian, if you have been saved, you've been saved for good works in Christ. You've not been saved to go do good work for yourself. You've been saved to do good work for Jesus. Now that's what this list was expected to do. That's what these widows on this list were expected to do. Do not live your life, even the final years, as if God is no longer watching and all of the coffers in heaven are totally full of all the good works that you can perform. It's a foolish way to live. Okay, requirement number one, over the age of 60, ready to work. Okay, requirement number two, faithful in marriage. Here in verse 9 it says, not unless she has been the wife of one man. Literally, a one-man woman. Similar to the pastoral qualification than the deacon qualification, that a pastor or a deacon be a one-woman man, okay, this is a one-man woman. Now, what does that mean? It means this is a person who has exemplified faithful devotion to her husband. She did not have an eye on the field, okay? She wasn't uh, philandering about. She wasn't in and out of trysts with other people. She was faithful to her husband who has died. She's demonstrated faithfulness in marriage. No man or woman is worthy of a spouse's full marital devotion. Let's just be clear about that now. I, I don't deserve my wife's devotion to me. And she doesn't deserve my devotion to her. This is a gift. It is a ministry for a man to remain faithful to his wife. And it's a gift and ministry for a wife to remain faithful to her husband. It is truly a giving of yourself. Cheating is a ridiculous word to describe infidelity in marriage. Cheating is what you do on a test. Cheating is what you do uh, when you cut a corner in a race. Cheating is not a word that should represent infidelity in marriage. Infidelity in marriage is a betrayal, not just of one's spouse, but also of one's children, where children are involved, and certainly of one's God. The marriage covenant is entered into before God Infidelity in marriage is an offense to him, a deep, abiding offense to him. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 makes this clear. Here's Hebrews 13, 4. A lot of great instruction in the first four verses of Hebrews 4. Here it says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. You know, so many times people are you know, unfaithful in their marriage relationships and they're, they're so concerned about other human beings and how other human beings will judge them. Look, you may face the judgment of other human beings if you're unfaithful in marriage, but the one that you should be concerned about if you're unfaithful in marriage is God. He will judge. That ought to scare the living daylights out of a person. Open repentance and acknowledgement of sin 
is without question the least destructive action, the most healing and redemptive action that we can take when there has been gross sexual misconduct. Open repentance, open acknowledgement of sin is what God required of Judah, it's what God required of David, it's what God requires of us. When we take something like infidelity in marriage and we try to justify it, or we try to explain it away, or we try to hide it and cover it up, it wreaks destruction because our children now have no clear picture of what this means. Only what they felt, but they don't have a clear picture of what it means. They grow up with a false message about the seriousness of this offense. So one of the qualifications here, faithfulness in marriage. Third qualification, faithful as a mom. Now I'm going to get in a lot of trouble here, but we're going to be honest about it anyway. None of this should be controversial. Someone in the marriage has to raise the children. I don't mean discipline the children or provide for the children. Mom and dad both do that jointly, okay? But if dad is going to work every day, as the Bible calls him to do, if, he's if he is consuming the majority of the hours of the day with providing for his family, Someone has to be at home with little Junior. Someone does. Someone has to raise that infant. Someone has to raise that toddler. He is not going to stay home by himself and do it. If dad is going to work, someone is going to raise Junior. And every human being in the world, this is true of. Someone raised you. I don't know who, but someone raised you. When you were two and you started to rebel and do little things that two-year-olds do and say no back to mommy and daddy and throw a fit and lay on the floor and kick and scream or rip a toy out of another person's hand, someone was there to raise you. Now, maybe they ignored it. Maybe they didn't pay attention to it. But you were not alone because two-year-olds don't survive on their, on, on, on their own. Someone is raising children on a daily basis. That is mom's job. It's unbelievable to me that it is somehow controversial to say that moms should raise the children. But it is. It wasn't. It didn't used to be controversial to say that. It didn't used to be offensive to say that. Children, according to God's word, are a gift and a blessing and a responsibility. And the person called to raise those children, the people called to raise those children are mom and dad. And dad has a responsibility. He's supposed to go to work and earn a living and provide for his wife and provide for his household. And the mom, the wife, is supposed to raise those children. That's what the Bible says. Uh, here is a message from the 1970s Soviet Union. Now, those of you who know a little bit about the Soviet Union will know that uh, it wasn't exactly a great model culture for people. The message of the Soviet Union in the 1970s is reported in the New York Times, the state will raise your children. The New York Times was reporting that in the 70s with a certain appalling nature to it that, that any foreign country would think that and they, you know, the New York Times is reporting it like, you know, America has no idea how messed up the Soviet Union is, that the state will raise the children. But that same message was key to the presidential campaigns of Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren in 2020 for the United States of America.
the idea of universal daycare where every child uh, will be placed in a state-funded daycare when they are born so that mothers can give birth and go to work. Melissa Harris Perry, who is a prominent uh, Democratic spokesperson and activist um, in a strategic ad in 2013, got herself in trouble. Now this was an ad. This was a, this was a planned ad. This wasn't something she said off the cuff. So they, she planned this message and released it on television commercials across the United States. Here was the message. Quote, we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or that kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to their communities. That was her message. Well, as you can imagine, there were plenty of people who thought, wait a minute, I thought those were my children. I thought they belonged to me. I thought it was my responsibility to raise them and prepare them for life. I thought it was my responsibility to pass on my values. I thought it was my responsibility as their mom and dad to care for them. Who is this woman who's saying that the kids don't belong to me and that it's that, that, that my kids should not be private to my home, that my that kids don't belong to their families? Who is this woman who's saying that, that we all have to recognize that kids belong to the communities and not to, not to their own families. And so she got in a lot of trouble, and nevertheless, when she was called on the carpet for it, she doubled down in her defense of this. Now listen to what she says, and listen to how clearly she states it. This is about whether we as a society, expressing our collective will through public institutions, including our government, have a right to impinge on individual freedoms in order to advance the common good. In other words, we should all believe that as a society, our public institutions, schools, governments, have a right to impinge upon a mother and father's freedom to raise their children according to their own values in order to advance a common good. This is what the secular culture around us believes about raising children. They do not believe that it is a mother and father's responsibility to raise their kids. They think it's a mother and father's responsibility to provide for their children by going to work, but they think that it's the state's responsibility to actually care and bring up those children with the proper values. This is nonsense. This is what's at risk, and this is why we have to be clear about this. It is a mother's responsibility to raise her children. Now, I was babysat as a toddler for a short time while my mom went to work at a bank every day. I had the privilege of being watched by a loving aunt, my Aunt Sheila, who loved me and cared for me. Um, but it tore my mom apart that she was not with me and not around me because she was raised with a core set of values that mothers should be with their children at least until their children were capable and were established that mothers should be with their children. One day uh, while I was at my Aunt Sheila's, I, I don't, don't know how, just one, two years old, I, I pulled up on a bookshelf and the bookshelf fell on me. I was okay, I wasn't hurt, I wasn't killed, I wasn't injured, but my mom apparently announced to my father that this arrangement was over <laughs> and she was done working and she was gonna be at home with her baby. Um, now, I am not suggesting that there is one single template for raising children. I don't believe that. And I, there is no mother in the world 
that I respect more than my mother. Um, I think my wife is a wonderful mother, and I put her right up there with my mother, but I don't respect anyone in the world as a mother more than I respect my mother. My mother, at various times, worked at home, several different periods during my upbringing. She worked at home. She also worked away from home at various times, as I just said, when I was a toddler and at various other ages of my life. Out of necessity, she did. My mom and dad did not live an extravagant life. My mom and dad have never owned a home. You know, they've never driven, you know, really nice cars. Um, you know, they've, ne they, they, they've never had a, a luxurious retirement account. Um, our vacations every year were family uh, camping trips. They weren't, you know, nice long trips. I didn't know how poor we were as kids, but we were poor. But my mom raised me, and she did what she had to do to do it. She worked at home. She worked away from home. She also worked as a stay-at-home mom whenever she could. That was her primary thing. Um, this is not about homeschooling or public schooling. I was uh, public schooled and I was homeschooled. I experienced both of them. Um, my mom was a capable and strong woman. She could run any business or any event, um, and I watched her excel in so many different environments. I remember her uh, learning how to assemble printer cartridges to make money, uh, babysitting uh, more than 10 kids at, at once in a two-bedroom home. She thrived in office environments, and, and she was never uh, discarded or, or laid off or let go. She, was, uh, she thrived in banks, uh, in, in the financial industry, and, and she thrived in, in mediocre jobs like the fast food industry. My mom did well wherever she went. I remember at one point in time, we moved out into Lockwood, Missouri, which is this this is a small, small little country village, miles and miles off the main road, gravel roads, farmland in between, people riding horses to church in the 90s. It was way out in the middle of nowhere in Missouri. And that's where we lived. And there was no place to go get, you know, part-time work. But my mom found one. They had this little boardwalk, you know, country village. And she, she uh, volunteered to work in, in arts and crafts at one of these little country stores. And she was a pretty good artist. And my mom made money doing arts and crafts in that little country store to support our family. She did pretty well. My mom's a capable, strong woman. This is not about the capabilities or the strength or the professional aptitude of a mom. And there's no one way to do this. There, uh, this is not about mom shouldn't work or mom shouldn't help or mom shouldn't provide and sometimes circumstances force it. But my mom told me with her words and her actions over and over again that Nathan and I were the most important, wonderful, amazing things that God had ever given her. Stuff that would really make you blush as a, as a growing boy, as a young man. And she told us over and over again that we were her most important life's work. And my father did the same thing in his own way, but my mom has always overtly communicated that. These weren't just words from my parents, but they lived it. Why? Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the person who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. My mom and dad saw the two boys that God had given them as the most important responsibility of their lives. 
and uh, I couldn't be more grateful to them for the way they've raised me. It is important that a woman be faithful as a mom. If that's what if God has given her children, and God doesn't give every woman children, but if God has given her children, it is important that she be found faithful in this. Fourth qualification, faithful in hospitality. Faithful in hospitality. Uh, it says here, if she has lodged strangers. Lodging strangers was a common good work involving opening up your home to those in need, often to others uh, who would not be received elsewhere. Hebrews chapter 13, again Hebrews 13, verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. Apparently it is within the character of God to put His people to the test by disguising angelic beings, supernatural beings, who certainly don't need the provision of men and women. And then sending them out into the world to see whether or not His people will be faithful to care for those who need no care at all. Hospitality is important. It reveals a part of a person's character, a part of the person's character that really only God often sees, whether or not the stranger, whether or not the alien, whether or not the traveler, whether or not the person whom the rest of the community has no obligation to will be received and cared for. Five, she must be faithful to serve the church. It says here, if she has washed the saints' feet. Washing the feet of the saints was a humbling task. It was not a privileged position. To be the person who would be eager to get down on the floor and clean the feet off of those who were entering a building, feet that had worn sandals or gone barefoot and walked up and down dusty, unpaved streets and pathways all day, and now they were entering a home, they were going to worship, they were going to eat, they were going to serve, they were going to fellowship, and there would be a basin and water, and they might get down and, and, and do it themselves and wash themselves off so that they wouldn't contaminate the home or the dwelling so that they could be comfortable, so that they could be free of the grime and the dirt and the dust between their toes and on their soles and riding up their leg. And this is a person who goes to the floor before they can reach for the basin and the towel themselves and takes it in their hand and says, let me, let me clean and washes off the feet. When I think of this, I think of women who clean the church who work in the nursery, who serve meals to one another, who send cards, who make phone calls, who persist in prayer. You know, there was women of the church when my, when my brother injured himself and, and he cut his hand and there was, there was uh, blood everywhere. It was a gruesome injury and I was going in the middle of the night to the hospital with him and so was Sarah, his wife, going to the hospital and the, the living room just looked like a war zone. It was so bad. It was women of the church who came and cleaned blood off of carpets and furniture and walls and floors and doors and handles. Serving. Loving. Uh, sixth qualification. Faithful to help. Uh, the Bible says, if she has relieved the afflicted. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are also the body. 
Again, Hebrews 13. Same could be said about those who are suffering with sickness, not just prisoners. Those who are abused, those who are abandoned, those who are truly alone, those who are struggling. They help the afflicted. They assist those in distress. While a husband went to work every day to provide for his household, this is a woman who did not simply sit at home concerning herself with nothing but the four walls of whatever room she was in. She looked out at those around her. She looked out at those in the church, those in the family of God, and she spent her days asking, how can I serve today? How can I ease the burden of others today? Not how can I entertain myself, how can I exercise myself, how can I make myself feel better, no, no, no. How can I assist others today? And finally, just the general word here. This is someone who is faithful to perform good works. It says, she has diligently followed every good work. This kind of woman is worthy of any list. This kind of woman is worthy for ministry. She's worthy to serve. She's worthy to offer something. She shouldn't be discarded or set to the side just because she's over 60, just because the rest of the world doesn't have anything for her to do anymore. This kind of woman can make a difference. This is a, a child of God, a princess of God's kingdom. This is someone who still has time to store up treasures in heaven. This is someone who can still bring glory to God. You know, I praise the Lord that God creates us with purpose and no Christian reaches an age in life where they're just not worth anything to God's kingdom anymore. And here are women who have undoubtedly gone through an enormous pain. Sixty years old, husband dies. What do I do now? You know, not every woman qualified for this list, but every woman who's part of the family of God will have provision and every woman who has done well can not only have provision but continue to represent the body of Christ and set aside dedicated ministry. To me I think that's a beautiful thing. I think everything about this list is a beautiful thing. I find something noble, something to aspire to, something to be challenged by in this list. And I'm reminded that, well, women may be the weaker vessel in the sense of physical strength. There is nothing weak about what the women of God are called to do or be. There's nothing inferior about my wife and who she is. There's something precious, something high, something noble in who she is and who God has called her to be, something that we should lift up and honor and respect. Let's pray now for the women in the churches all around us. Father, I pray for all of the women, both young and old, who would hear a message like this. I pray for those who wonder where they fit, those who perhaps know they're not qualified for a type of list like this. Yet I pray, Father, for, for them also. You'll compel them to surrender themselves fully to the plan that you have for their life. Just because they don't qualify for a specific list doesn't mean that they don't have anything to offer your kingdom.
or that there is no treasure in heaven that can be stored up on their account, but that all your children are called to glorify you and honor you. And for those who are younger or who are in the middle of these things or who are thinking through how they should live their lives, help them to see something here worth aspiration, something to aspire to be here, a goal to aim for. Why not shoot for this if this is what is good, if this is what is fitting, if this is what is right? Father, I pray for widows whose husbands have died. I pray for women who are not widows, but who you know will one day be widows, will know the sorrow over the death of a spouse. I pray, Father, that you'll give them strength and encouragement that the death of a spouse is not the end of a life. It's the end of a spouse's life, but not the end of a widow's. That you're not done with them. That there's a purpose still in this world, as well as, we hope, a reunion in Christ coming in heaven. Help them to so be comforted. And, Father, give us an appreciation a sense of honor towards widows, a sense of honor towards widows who have done well especially. Help us to give them the place to speak and give us the ear to listen. Help us to respect their ministry in the church. I ask these things in your name. Amen.